everybody, welcome to another edition of The Lighter Side of Serial Killers here on the Boom-Bastic Media Network. I am your host, Keith Rivera. I'm an author and collector of true crime art and memorabilia. And I am very thankful for each and every one of you. Our reviews have been great. We're getting a lot of views and follows. I'm getting a lot of awesome messages from you guys. Is that um, You think this podcast is a little different. Actually, hearing from serial killers themselves, and obviously it's the lighter side, but obviously we get into the dark side of things too. You can't help being a true crime podcast, but I hope I'm offering a little something different. Um, but today, Keith wanted to do a part three to kind of wrap up uh, the Tanya Bennett case as far as what he wanted to get across, uh, which is mainly how the police, when they think they have somebody uh, in prison who they believe is guilty, um, and when Keith came out and really proved the fact that he was actually the murderer, um, the lengths the police go, I mean, it's not like you snap, once they realize Keith did it, you don't just snap your fingers and let John and Laverne out, as we're going to hear a little bit further uh, today, but they fed her so much information um, just to close the case. I said, I want to call it corruption, but man, letting her view the search warrant, letting her, all this information feeding her uh, where the body was and, and so many different things. So we're going to hear uh, again from Keith. Again, kind of putting the button on this, if you will, uh, for this specific case. Uh, and then some cool things coming up. We're going to do a Q&A with Keith. If you follow me on my social media, either on my author Keith Revere page on Facebook or on uh, either on Instagram or TikTok, follow me either one. Um, send me questions you would like Keith to answer. We're going to have a little fun uh, with the next podcast when we have him on. Um, anything you want. Obviously, Keith's an open book. Um, he told me some funny stories the other night. We're going to you know tie that into it, too him feeding mountain lions and all kind of crazy stuff. Um, yes, he's a serial killer, but if you kind of ignore <laughs> ignore that part, he's a very funny guy, and hopefully we can shed some light on that also. Um, but for now, uh, we're going to hear some final thoughts um, on the, the Tanya Bennett case, specifically about the police, and once they knew that Keith was actually the murderer, uh, they fought to keep John and Laverne in prison. And they even, you know, as we hear from Keith, they even thought that, well, at least they tried to um, push the facts forward, so-called facts forward, that Keith was in cahoots with John and Laverne. And then it, it took like, a, like over a year just to get him out of prison once they knew what the facts really were. Anyway, so let's hear from Keith. Uh, we'll call it the continuation of the Tanya Bennett murder. So, Keith, why don't we pick it up when you first realize you were kind of caught with the Julie Winningham murder and how it all ties back into Tanya Bennett. Okay, so, so on the 22nd of March, 1995, that was the day they took me in, in for questioning in you know, Los Cruces, New Mexico. Well, they let me go, and I read the affidavit I knew I was caught. Mm. So I was trying to think what to do next, you know, because paranoia kind of set in. It was just like I had done the murder for the first time. Now I was, now I was dealing with the legal system for the first time. So I, was, I, was, I didn't want to go down that way. I thought... Man, I, I need to commit suicide. I need to get away from this. I need to kill myself mm-hmm. and so that nobody finds out who Keith Jefferson is, right? Sure. So I go to I go into I go to a truck stop and I go in and I buy a bunch of sleeping pills, over the counter sleeping pills. A little did I know they ain't gonna do me any good. They're not gonna kill me unless I do something else with them or whatever. But I take all these pills, about set a whole bunch of packs, about seventy two pills. I go in the truck bottle water and I pour them down my throat and I say goodbye to my kids and I'm in my bed and I go to sleep, right? I just pass out. Well, halfway through the night, my body rejects the pills and I puke them all up and 
go all over and drive the cab. And, and, and I have to pee really bad. And I, I just, I'm so doped up, I don't know really what's going on. So I, I get out of the truck, and I'm walking to the truck stop and didn't realize I only put one boot on. And I'm walking across this parking tile. I'm up in my seat hurt. I'm looking down, I only got one boot on. I go in and pee, and I come back on out, and I'm still so doped up. I walk towards where my truck was. I'm thinking this is where my truck is, and I'm still, but I, I get it wrong. I think I forget that I'm not driving for Simpson anymore. I'm thinking I'm still driving for myself, which is just running a reefer and a big Peterbilt and stuff like this. So I walk over to the, the, the next truck, and it's prime trucking. And I don't realize it's a prime trucking truck. It's not my truck. But I get in the truck, and I'm sitting in the cab, sitting there, going like, well, where's all my stuff at? You know, and then the guy comes out of the sleeper. What are you doing in my truck? And I start yelling at me. And I'm like, I'm sure if a prime driver listens to this, he's going to know, honest, that's that guy, man. That's the guy that was in Las Cruces climbed into my truck. Anyway, so I climbed out and I was arguing with him that it was my truck. And of course, he calls the cops and the sheriff shows up. And he comes over and he says, uh, why'd you get in a truck? And I said, I thought it was mine. I really did. Uh, but, you know, I'm. And he asked me for my logbook, and I said, I don't have a logbook. He said, why not? He said, because you guys got it, right? Because the, the sheriff had my logbook. Oh. <laughs> and he just come from down the road, and he said, why, why do we have it? I said, well, my girlfriend got killed, and they, they had me at your damn place. They're talking about it all day. And so I was really upset, so I took some sleeping pills so I could sleep tonight. And apparently I might have taken too many, and I just kind of like laid that on him. And so what he did, he took my key so I couldn't start my truck. My truck was parked on the other side of him. When I got out of the truck, that truck wasn't there. He parked in it while I was in there taking a pee, and then when I came back, I just walked like, directly over to where my truck was, and I stepped right up into his. That's funny. Anyway, so he, wouldn't, he didn't press charges. And so uh, I sat in the truck, and went right down, and I went to sleep, and I woke up in the morning. And I went in, I got my boots and stuff on, I walked into the, the truck stop, and the, 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 my keys were in the cash register so I could get my keys in the morning. And I called my boss, and he said he was sorry because he had to set me up to go get this. And, and the cops had told him that I was free to go, and, and that's because I had denied all the whole guilt. And he said, well, head on over to Phoenix, Arizona, we're going to blow me out out of there. So... I get back in the truck and I, and I with a new logbook, and I fill it out and, and I start heading west on I-10. And uh, I'm thinking about, you know, man, I really need to do myself in because I didn't work last night. Maybe I took too many pills. And I drive into Arizona and I stop at what was called the 44D truck stop. It's like 60 miles from Wilcox, Arizona. And I pull in there. I park. And I only take about 50 pills that night, and I go to sleep. And of course, in the morning, I wake up with a damn headache. I don't, I don't die. And I'm thinking this is crazy. And then when I look up, when I wake up in the morning, I'm looking up on the hills. I'm up by the hills, and I see snow on the on the hills. I'm thinking, well, God, you know, if I walk up there, hike up the hills to where there's snow, it'll be so cold I'll get hypothermia and I'll die. Right? That's what. But before I went up there, I decided I'd write a letter to, uh, it was a suicide note to my family to let them know that I was, why I did this is because I was a murderer of, uh, of eight women in the last five years. And I sent that off. It was a suicide note I sent to my brother Brad, 
in the state of Washington. Well, it it wasn't it wasn't really it was just a suicide note. I was just trying to explain why I was I was killing myself. And then when I uh, then then when I went on this hike, I got up there. And the, the more I hiked, the clearer my mind worked. I finally realized I said, you know what I need to do? I need to I need to turn myself in. I need to make this you know face the music, do the right thing, face the music, and, and just let the system play me right. So I, I hiked back to the truck. I drove back to the 43 truck, 42, 44D truck stop, and called Detective Rick Buckner, who I didn't, who I thought would still be in Las Cruces, which he wasn't. He was back home in, in Clark County, and I confessed to him over the phone at about 9, 9 p.m. And he contacted the Wilcox Sheriff's Department, and they came out there about an hour and a half later. They showed up at the truck stop. I walked over to him, told them who I was. They hooked cuffs on me, and they drove me back to the station of Wilcox. And I spent the night there on suicide watch, of all stupid things, because they thought I'd be suicide. I'd given up trying to kill myself. And so now they, they put me on suicide watch, which is stupid. But they, they did anyway. And the next morning, I was taken to Bisbee County Jail, which is the, the county of, of, of Wilcox. And I talked to an attorney that the attorney told me the worst thing I could have done is talk to the cops. Worst thing to do. Sure. Uh, but I waived extradition again. I waived extradition, and within a few days, they flew me back to Washington State, placed me in Clark County Jail. Now, all this time, I was, I was thinking about that damn suicide note I sent to my brother Brad. So I called him on the phone from the county jail. And I was talking to him. I said, man, you need to destroy that letter I sent you. And he said, so he said he did. He said he flushed it down the toilet. And he didn't, you know. At some point later on, my father gave the suicide letter to the detectives. And this changed things from one murder to maybe eight murders. Sure. All right. Mm-hmm. So now, you know, so while I was there in Clark County, uh, originally I was arraigned for murder. I waved the fast and speedy at my lawyer's request because he had so many, he had a caseload that was terrible. And he told me to not talk to anyone, just sit there. And on May 11th, 1995, my, my attorney called me into a, a room and he, and he laid down a copy of the suicide letter in front of me. At that point, I knew my, my world was just going to go to shit really fast. Sure. And so he asked me, is there any truth to this? And I said, well, yeah. And for the next hour or so, I explained all eight cases, including the Bennett case, and told him how it all went down. And then he he told me how he would like to settle the cases, which would be uh, the last one, one and a half case, and then the, the, the Andrew Fabrice case and the Florida case, and, and go backwards. So I would not have any preceding cases to show a pattern in court. Sure. So that I could possibly get eight life sentences, eight life sentences for murder in second degree instead of first degree, and that's the way he wanted to do it. And I said, "Well, it's eh, not really the way I want to do it. I think I should settle the Bennett case first, and so that once I get them out of prison, everything will fall in line." And he wasn't quite good with that, but you know, he's, he's a lawyer. He's supposed to know more than I do about those kind of things. But he told me that Buckner, the cop, was comparing that with the happy face letter that was sent in 1994. And I, then when he told me that, I was like, oh, man, this is going to hit the fan pretty quick. And, of course, I sat in my cell not talking to anyone. And in June of 
95, Detective Buckner gave the material to the press about me and, and did not contact Multnomah County to talk about the Benetton, which pissed off Multnomah County because they claimed that I was a liar anyway. Mm. There's no way in hell that I did this. But in June of 95, Buckner went to the public and they, and, and they had this big news blitz that went on talking about me being in, in the county jail. And the court system didn't place a gag order on this on the case, which is typical. The, the police don't get gag orders. The, the prosecutor doesn't get a gag order. Only the guy, the, only the, the, the person, the suspect, if he starts talking to the press, has a gag order put on him. Hmm. So in June, they didn't put a gag order on all life, and, and my lawyer told me to leave it alone, don't talk to anyone. And I had to determine between there and September when I, when I decided that I needed to go forward with this and tell everyone I was, in fact, a happy face killer uh, to take away their glory. In other words, to take away them finding out who I was. Because in, in court, I'm not that person until I'm proven guilty in a court of law. I'm not that person. But unless I confess to it. Sure. Now, so I, I, I decided I'm going to confess to it, take responsibility for my actions and take the fight to them and not wait for them to take the fight to me. And so in September, I decided to take that fight and confess to that I was in fact a happy face. And that all came about in, in the middle of, right in the middle of September. I don't know if you're aware of this, but when you go to jail, uh, when you're in county jail or city jail, they lock you down. They pretty much, they watch what you write. They listen to your phone calls. They want to get that information before anyone else does. So in order for me to get my confessions out to the press, I had to find a way to to smuggle it out. And so I got a guy that had a wife over in St. John's, Oregon, and and she would take the letter that she gets and respond them in the mailbox and send them on their way to the press people. All I had to do was be able to get it there. So I put seven confessions in a 10 by 13 envelope with the rock right process on it and with this guy with his with her husband's name on it and her address and he sent that to his lawyer and the lawyer were walking out of the out of the, the, the county jail to a, a, a mail drop box outside of the building and deposited so that the cops never got to look at it wow and that, and that was sent out on the 14th of, of September now, on Saturday the 16th, that's when she got it, St. John's, turned around and redeposited in the mail. I figured, well, the press would have got that on the 18th, because there, were, there was a two-day turnaround on mail at that time. And uh, nothing happened on the 18th, it was the Monday. Well, on the 19th, all hell broke loose, right? Uh, the press went nuts, and here I asked him, all these confessions, you can, go to, you can go online and you can find that out, mm-hmm. that that's what happened. And they... They made such a big deal about this, and I had I had the cops, the, the, the guards coming to my cell, shaking my hand, uh, congratulating me on taking responsibility for my actions. Oh, wow. They were behind me on this. They were right behind me on this. Now, on the 20th, uh, Judge Harris calls me into, into the, the chambers, and he says, we're going we're gonna to put a gag order on you because to keep you from talking so that your, your case will have a, a third time in trial. And I told him, I told my court that I said, there's not going to be a trial. This is never going to go to trial. 
And he said, well, just in case it is, that's where we're putting a gag order on it. Now, Muslim account across the, across the river is, is slamming me, claiming that I'm lying about the Bennett case. That, and they went to other cases. Uh, that it, you know, they had the one in, in Livingston, they had another one there in Santa Clara County, and they're trying to get them to claim that I lied about those so that they have a, a, a good report, right? They're trying to build up the idea with the public that I was a liar, that, that, that I didn't kill Bennett, that, that they had the right people in prison. Mm -hmm. Well, right about that time, I sent my lawyer over to make a deal. Now, you probably read that in the LA Times that I sent my lawyer over there. Mm -hmm. And my and Tom Phelan, my lawyer, his biggest issue was the death penalty. He didn't believe in it. Oh, okay. Everyone said, well, you didn't, you know, they all wondered why I didn't go for the death penalty. Well, my lawyer didn't like it. He didn't want the death penalty for me. And that was the only stipulation I had with him. I said, well, okay, if that's the case, go ahead and and plead me to a life sentence at any time. So when you go over and make a deal with Multnomah County, go over there and, and whatever the deal they, they, they offer you, just take it if it's not the death penalty, right? Mm-hmm. And, of course, when he goes over, the very first thing they say, uh, Michael Strucker, the DA's office, they tell him that they have three unsolved murders that they'll pin on me if I just left the Bennett case alone. They oh. wanted to give me a body count. They thought that I wanted a body count to be a serial killer. But that's not what I wanted. I wanted to settle this Bennett case, get these people out of prison. Wow. But they were willing to give me three unsolved murders to make this go so that I didn't bring up the Bennett case. That's amazing. Which I told them to stick it up their ass. Wow. And then, uh, yeah, and then my attorney went over and he said, well, you, if you want to talk to them, you got you got to make a deal. Now, they didn't want to, normally, instead, this is asked backwards. Normally, they charge you with a crime, and then we talk about a deal. But in order to, for them to charge me with a crime, I had to prove that I did the crime. And they didn't want me to prove I did the crime. But in order for me to prove I did the crime, I got to have a deal so that when I've proven that I did the crime, then I have no ammunition to, to get a deal. Yeah. Okay. Everything is out there in the open. So they had to make a deal so they give me 30 years set just to talk to me. And that's what they did. They, they, they gave me this, uh, this time set to do. And I was like, okay, fine. Uh, that gave them permission to come and talk to me. They had to, they had to have something up there. They had to wonder what I had on them in order to get them out of prison because you got to, when, when they took over the trial, they made sure all the evidence that they knew came out in trial so there'd be no appeal. They made sure that they didn't want to have them appeal anything under new evidence. The only new evidence is what I had. Sure. And so they needed to talk to me to find out what evidence I had. And so they, they came to see me. They set up a meeting, and that was on the 25th. Of, of September. And when they came over and talked to me, uh, they started asking me questions. Now, my lawyer told me they're going to do everything they can to discredit me, to make me out to be this kook, right, that I never do it. And when they asked me what she was wearing, I, I guess, I mean, I didn't know. I mean, I didn't take an inventory of her when I killed her. Mm -hmm. I didn't want, I, I wanted to forget it as soon as it happened. I didn't want anything. I didn't want to remember anything. Sure. But uh, they asked me all these questions about what you wore and different things on your I started guessing. My lawyer pulled me off the side. Don't, think, don't guess on anything because anytime I guess and guess wrong, then, of course, they use that against me saying that I didn't know. 
Mm-hmm. And of course, if you read the article, they they'll tell you, oh, I didn't know what she was wearing. Well, how how the fuck would I know? Right? Yeah, yeah. Because I didn't take inventory. I don't know what the hell. I mean, that happened so many years ago, and here I'm trying to figure out. I'm trying to get these people out, and, and I'm trying to come up with with the answers, and I couldn't come up with the answers because I didn't know. Yeah. But so I started telling what I did know. Okay, and then. That was kind of crazy. So we set up this, we're going to set up a meeting with, uh, uh, we're going to go on our drive around, you know, on October 2nd, which is a Monday. And so that meeting was over with, so they're going to set that up. Now, when I got back to Clark County and right back to my cell, I called up Phil Stanford on September 30th several times. He is no longer worked for the Oregonian newspaper. He's now worked for the uh, Willamette Week. And you could probably look up his article came out I think on the on the on the fourth of October in ninety five. You know, uh, a serial killer calls on the phone phone call from a serial killer or something like that by Phil Stafford. Mm. And and so because I broke the gag order on this on September thirtieth, on October first that 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 Sunday, they placed me in a medical unit isolation. So I, I wasn't out to use the phone at all, but and, and all the other inmates in there were told not to help me. Yeah. But I was able to get a guy named Dale Thompson to help me because he was falsely accused as well, and he was going to help me. Good. So I went on this drive around. Let me explain the drive around. Uh, the lawyer, my, my lawyer's there at Clark County. Uh, Detective Rick Buckner picks us up and drives us over to Multnomah County, uh, the Sheriff's Office. They're off 122nd and Gleason Avenue. And they walked me into this, this office, and they sit me down in a cubicle. In this cubicle, there's pictures of Laverne Tavanaugh pointing off into this ravine. They, this is a setup, big time. They have paperwork on it. They have newspaper articles laying everywhere, right out there where they sit me down, so they hope that I read it. And I taint my, my, my evidence. And I just shut my eyes and pretend I'm going to sleep. I just, I just shut my eyes and I ignore it. I, I see it there, but I, I don't make a thing about it. I just, I just say nothing and I, I pretend I'm asleep. We finally get up and we walk to their, uh, their, where all the cars are. And they put us in a nine passenger dog van, a white one. And they put me in the third seat back. So I can't even see the dash, you know, and, it's up to me to give them directions on how to go on this drive around. Well, I, I give them instructions to go down Gleason and go to the house at 18434 North East 7th Street. We park outside on the street. And I said, well, let's go on inside the house and I'll show you where I killed her, you know, where, the, where there's possible evidence, maybe in the closet or against the wall, maybe a little specks here and there. Maybe you can spray the wall with luminol and, and, and it'll show a blood pattern. No, we can't go in there, he said. We're not doing this, right? We don't have permission to go in the house. Well, okay, fine. So I show him, I give him directions how to go to the B.I. Cabin over on Stark Avenue by 186th Street. We'll go over there and we sit in the parking lot. And I tell them the inside of the, of the, of the, of the tavern. I just give them a description of how the layout is. Well, now it's time. We go, we drive up there to Sandy River Road. We go all the way up to the Fifth House Monument at Crown Point. And when we get there, he throws a towel over the odometer, which I can't see anyway. 
and we drive down off of the, from Crown Point. We drive down this hill, and it's very steep. We go down there, and we it winds around against the hill, and all of a sudden it turns really sharply to the left, and it goes kind of northwest and straight arrow away from the hill. And right at that corner is where the ravine is. Well, I yell at it, stopped. And they keep driving. They won't stop. It keeps driving. So they drive down past the, the switchback all the way and they go to the next waterfall, which is about a mile and a half to a mile down the road. I, can, I tell them to turn around and go back, which they turn around reluctantly and they get back. When we get to the top of the ravine where I was, I tell them to stop again. Of course, they keep driving. They drive another 50, 100 yards. We stop and we get out and we go down. I'm walking with leg irons and, and chains on. And we get to the top of the ravine, I step off the road and start walking down in the ravine, and I hear, hey, stop there, you can't go down in there. And he's, these guys look like they've got their guns drawn. They're going to draw their guns and shoot me for going down there to show them where they'll put the body. And uh, I have my, my protector, Rick Buckner, who's, you know, looking after me with my lawyer. And so I have to get back on the road. Well, they said, I said, I'm going to go down there and stand there right where I put the body. And they said, no, you're not. You're not going to leave the road. Mm-hmm. And one of the other cops there for a moment kind of walks down to the next ravine and said, you sure it's not this ravine over here? There's another ring pass. I said, are you sure it's not this one too? And, and you, you know, and they come up and they said, well, your best guess. This is when they come back with the best guess thing. Is it A, B, or C? You know, the most likely, the most likely ravine. I look at my lawyer. I said, what the hell is this? He said, just play along. We know you got the right ravine, right? So here's, it, it comes down to their storytelling. They want to say, well, he's, he didn't quite know for sure, but most likely this sure. is the one it is, right? So that's what they wanted to say in the report. And of course, I got the right ravine because I, I put him. But they didn't want to. Now, our next little drive was up the Sandy River Road where I threw the purse. Now, while we're driving there, I asked the question. I said, hey, I know where this is exactly. I can walk right down there and pull it right out of the weeds. Can I go do that? And they said, no. We're going to bring the four scouts up there, and they're going to come in, and they're going to look for it. I said, well, okay, fine. So we're driving up there, and they came up to a T in the road, and I said, it's right here. And they slammed the brakes on so hard, we almost all fell out of the chair. Mm-hmm. And, about a- and we all get out. We all get out. I'm looking down this ravine. It's all full of blackberry bushes, right? You know, this is where it is. This is the, the black, right down this down where all these blackberries are. I started laughing myself because it's not where it is. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't going to tell them where it is because I, I, I knew these cops didn't want to do this. They didn't want to do the right thing. I knew that I couldn't trust them to do the right thing on their own. Sure. I thought they, their full intention was they were going to destroy the evidence that I had so they could keep those two people in prison. That's what I thought was going to happen. I thought they were going to do that. So I wasn't going to tell them where it is. I needed, I needed Phil Stamper. I needed to, to stand over that and watch them find the person. Yep. I needed someone to watch over so that they were forced to find it under the watchful eyes of the press. Exactly. And, that, and that's what that's what I did. So I told them, this is where it is, right? Now, they they said, are you sure? And I said, well, yeah. You see that big old dead tree stump down there? He said, yeah. He says, well, I know it's not further south than that, right? So I give them a perimeter to where to look. They had this one area to look, and that's where they're going to look. So... We went back, and they took me back to Clark County and, and everything like this. Now, when I got back, I got a hold of Dale Thompson, and I got him to, uh, to send a letter of mine telling where the real location of the first was. 
to Phil Stafford, but, and she sent it through a letter to his girlfriend in Washuga, Washington. She in turn put it in the mail to Phil under with the understanding that on the 11th of of October that he would accept a call from, from Dale. So I get confirmation that he got the letter and he's going to watch over the over the, over with a person. And so uh, that happened. He, he sent that off and that was supposed to all work. So the letter was sent off and his girlfriend actually mailed it and, and Phil Stafford got real location of where the purse is at. And we definitely know they found the purse. Um, obviously, Keith's story was the truthful one. As much as the police did not want to believe it, uh, it was true. And Laverne, I mean, you got to feel for Laverne. You know, you can say what you will about her um, false testimony against John, but when you, if, if, if you were ever abused um, or an abusive relationship you couldn't quite get out of, I'm sure you can kind of feel for her. Uh, of course, you know, China Bennett and the whole family of that, a whole a sad story all the way around. Um, but it's insane. I mean, you gotta, you gotta be mindful. I mean, when the police really want somebody in prison, even if facts, um, say that they're innocent, you know, from the prosecutors, you know, when look like they have egg on their face, they'll do anything they can to keep them in there. Again, and even trying to, you know, the proof that Keith was actually part of, uh, Laverne and John's crew, if you will. Uh, but anyway, it all worked out in the end. You know, obviously the right person's behind bars, Laverne and John are out. Uh, again, if you have questions for Keith Jesperson, send them to me on any of my social media platforms, and he wants to answer your questions. All right? And until next time, see ya!